Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 34 of the podcast, the topic is behavioral science in product design. Our guest is Matt Wallert, behavioral scientist and author of Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change. In this conversation, we talk about how the field of product design has evolved, the value of experimentation, discovery of cutting-edge products, who does it well, corporations and startups, and how the future of product design is steeped in science. A word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets, including financial services, education, software, energy, healthcare, and life science. Check it out at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Matt, how are you doing today? Good, man. How are you? <laughs> I am doing great. I'm doing great. Um, I have this agenda today, Matt. We are going to talk about behavior. Um, but starting with you, um, I want to look at the behavior you've been uh, uh, showing over the last few years. So you're a behavior scientist. You are a, an entrepreneur. Uh, you're an advisor to many companies and places. You're an author of Start at the End, and uh, you wear cowboy boots. And I do wear, Tell us, I do wear cowboy boots. <laughs> yeah. Tell us what got you here. And uh, that's going to be challenging because your book says Start at the End. But I'm just curious. I usually try to get one nugget from my guests that got them where they are. I'm suspecting sure. with you that's going to be a little tricky if you want to start at the end, but you know, you tell me. Yeah, I actually think uh, it's sometimes hard for people to crystallize like an individual moment where it clicked. I have a very like specific clicky moment where like the gears really fell into place. Um, so I was in college. Um, I took an intro psych class that was not good. Um, you know, great, great researcher, great guy, but just not a good teacher. Like you couldn't literally would stand up and read from his notes. You couldn't go to the bathroom. You couldn't ask any questions. Like if you threw him off, he would just have to go back and repeat himself. Like it was just a terrible class. Um, but I took another site class from a really great professor. And I had this wonderful experience actually, where we read a paper about something called the implicit association test. And I didn't feel like the the author's conclusions were supported by their data. I wasn't arguing with the data. I didn't think the experimental design was bad, but I said, like, I felt like they were overreaching. And the professor, yeah. this guy named Andrew Ward, said this really fascinating thing that has always stuck with me, which is, hey, like, the field has decided that this is an appropriate interpretation of that data, right? Like, it's been peer-reviewed. There's a process for that. Like, we have decided this is okay. But this is science. Yeah. And so there is an orderly way to respond, right? You don't have to you know, argue about this, like you can just go run your own experiments and generate your own data that then, you know, sort of, you know, refutes what they have to say or nuances what they have to say, right? The, the right way to respond is by running your own experiments. And if you want to come to my lab and do that, you're welcome to. And that was really key for me. Um, I think it was the first time I ever really saw science as like, uh, or at least the scientific process or the academic process where people reply to each other through studies as like yeah. the first time I really felt like, hey, you know, socioeconomic status doesn't matter. It's not about who's more articulate, right? It's not about who's who has more power or is more, more eloquent. It's just about, you know, sort of letting the data guide you uh, towards the truth and that you can like have this conversation through data and this conversation about truth through experimentation. And of course, it's not entirely true, right? We know that, you know, socioeconomic power and other things, you know, being a white male does help you in academia. We know these things come into play, but it was the first time for me, I really felt like, oh, wow, here is a really unique way to have a conversation about, about the world. And that really got me hooked. And that's what led me to behavioral science and sort of applied behavioral science is that ability to, to use evidence in this really unique way to push things forward, right. To be a motivator for change. 
So Matt, I'm fascinated by what you're saying. I mean, I also love behavioral science. The interesting thing with your field is that you're sort of using it now in business and it has taken on quite a different, almost like a different characteristic when used in business from almost from, you know, because behavioral science essentially is a gen, it's a general concept for discussing and describing several different sciences that rely on this particular method. However, in business, it has become something quite different, yet, of course, related. I want you to, before we sort of get into what it actually is in business, because I think it's a very, very interesting trend, and we'll, we'll you know, explore it here at length. But what is it that's different? If you just want to say one thing about how behavioral science, you know, how you experienced it in school versus what it actually is in the marketplace. Yeah. And, and let's just start with that. Yeah. And, and then I, we can unbundle it. I'm sort of a unique guy to have that conversation too, right? Because I entered a PhD, I was recruited into PhD programs. I, I chose to go to Cornell and then I left. And a big part of that was, and so, so I've had this unique experience with why academia wasn't really what I wanted to do. And it isn't because what I think academia is bad, but the primary difference between what we think of as applied behavioral science, which is what we're doing in, in, in sort of business yep. and behavioral science and academia is Gnosticism, right? So the best way I can capture it is uh, let's imagine you have like the power glove from, from the Avengers, right? So you've got Thanos's power glove. You can snap and something, you know, you can make things happen in the universe and applied behavioral science yeah. is, is very happy about that, right? Because you know, like you can make change. Uh, Yep. But in academia, like academia is Gnostic. The point is knowledge. Application is a very different sec uh, 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 second. Now, it may be that application can occur. It may be that the things that you learn can be applied in the world. But that's not the point. The point is the knowing, right? In, yep. in business, it's the opposite, right? The point is the doing. That may inadvertently throw off knowledge, right? You may learn new things. You may come to knowing that you did not before, but that's not the point, right? And so... I'm very happy about the the sort of like Thanos power glove because I can create the change, right? And that's the dominant outcome for me. When I'm starting at the end, right? Like the outcome that I want is change, right? Not knowledge. And for academics, they want knowledge, right? And so if you don't know why something happened, then it didn't happen. Uh, well, so that, so that I think is the key difference. It, yeah. It is interesting you say that because in social science, uh, in the behavioral side of the social sciences, which is, I guess, where this concept comes from, uh, also when it goes into business, it is like that. But at engineering schools, it's not necessarily like that, right? If you think about the, the importance at any engineering school, uh, you know, application is just very, very important. And they start from a different point of view and their target is also different and the people they educate are going into a profession where they're actually going to carry something out so would you say that behavioral science feels different in an engineering context i mean you've now worked with a lot of engineers through the profession of behavioral science as it's applied to product design but would you say that when you go in and you say okay we're going to do behavioral science we're going to behavioral science this product process right off the bat do you feel like people in those two camps those stereotypical camps kind of the engineering camp versus the sort of social science folks do they understand different things when you come in and uh, advise yeah it's a great question and i think that is a prescient insight right we don't typically talk about engineering science right we talk about engineering right like as an applied discipline yep. and there is sort of like the notion of an engineering science which is the more academic version of that where like but to your point sure. there's engineering program Right. And engineering programs churn out dominantly engineers, right? Dominantly applied people. This is actually a, uh, I've talked a lot with, at the APA and with the APA, American Psychological Association, about that pivot that needs to happen in psychology, right? In social psychology, we don't turn out applied people, despite the fact that the majority of our, you know, undergraduates will in fact go on to apply jobs. That isn't what we train them for. We haven't developed the engineering mindset of, hey, the dominant number of these people are going to go into industry and maybe we should be teaching them about application, right? It is rare. Uh, this is, is exactly why I was, yeah. Yeah, this is less rare. This is why now. I asked you the question. Yeah, like yeah. 18 years ago when I graduated from college, 
like no one would have said, I'm going to go do a psychology degree to be a product manager, right? Like that was not a connection that somebody would have made. I, I'm going to go get this psychology background in order to apply it in this thing that is product management. It's starting to happen a little bit. I do, you know, I talk to undergraduates who, you know, are thinking, hey, I'm going to go out and apply this and want to talk about that path, but it's still very nascent compared to something like engineering. So you're right. When I go into an organization, it's, it's really interesting. Um, engineers, I think, love the applicability piece. Um, I think what's challenging for, for engineers typically when, when sort of working with behavioral scientists in, in the, in the product marketplace is engineering often is sort of the other way forward, right? It's not outcome backwards. It's sort of, you know, we start with the things that we need to build and then we build on top of them. It's very generative, right? And so it's hard yeah. for them sometimes, I think, to work with behavioral scientists because, for example, I start the behavioral science process with a behavioral statement, right? What behavior are we trying to create in the world? And if you say that to an engineer, they typically yeah. look at you like you're insane, right? Like that isn't, because that's not how, you know, engineering isn't, engineering doesn't think about, well, I want to get cars across this span of water. What do I need to do to get cars across this span of water? It says, I need to build a bridge, right? And it like, you know, in order to build a bridge, first I do this, then I do this, then I do that. Right. And so it's a very, you know, yeah. it's a very different direction. The other thing that's hard, a, a, yeah. a challenge for engineering that, you know, social scientists inside of businesses typically um, resonate a little more when they reach with behavioral science folks is. Um, so one of the things we do in behavioral science is pressure mapping. Right. So we talk about like, you know, we essentially are trying to answer two questions. Why would anyone ever want to do this? And why aren't they already doing it? And for engineers, yeah. they typically gravitate towards very logical reasons, pricing, right? Those yep. sorts of things. It's hard for them sometimes to feel yep. like marketing's a real thing, right? They're like, I built it and right. it works. And so transparently people will use it because I built it and it works. But that's like, obviously, yeah. like that is obviously not true. And yet it is like, because that's the, the perspective that engineering has. Engineering is responsible for delivering the bridge, not getting people to drive across it, right? Yep. And so, and I think honestly, the world has done engineers a disservice because you build better bridges if the engineer is in the room when you're having the conversation about, hey, we want people to drive across this bridge, right? If you don't just show up with engineers and be like, build me a bridge and instead involve them in, well, what we're trying to do is get people from point A to point B. Yeah. I think you just get better bridges because sometimes it's yeah. not a bridge, right? Sometimes it's something else. Well, I mean, I think your point is very well taken. In fact, you know, I have uh, people, several uh, people on the podcast now talking about the future of engineering education. So it's sort of like, it's interesting that, you know, engineering has kind of go, gone both ways, right? They, they've gone from a very theory-driven field over the past kind of 30 years, partly as a reaction and, you know, I guess to the complication of the technologies that they were building, which is, you know, the complexity has increased. But what they have lost in the process seems to be actually their natural ingenuity for, for the application and for, for the building part. Um, in, in the social sciences, it, 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 like you pointed out, it's been the opposite. It's gone from kind of a 30 years where people have questioned, why do you even need social scientists to, hey, how obvious is it that you need a psychologist or you know, someone who understands behavior because behavior is 90% of this product right here. So I think both fields, uh, which of course, I mean, they're only fields when you're in school or you are an academic, right? To other people, they're just bits and pieces of insight that you pick up along the way and, and that you apply. And I think it, I just wanted to comment on that because in particular in this type of knowledge that you have here, it's not like it's a body of thinking more than it is. It seems to be more of an, it's a mindset of experimentation, of a deep mindset of experimentation, more even than a set of methods. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely sort of, you know, when I talk about behavioral science, I talk about behavior as an outcome science as a process, right? That's behavioral science to me. It's not social yeah. psychology. It's not, you know, sort of like, you know, more lenses on it. And, and thus anyone can be a behavioral science right, scientist, right? Anyone can learn to put behavior at the center of what they do. And anyone can learn to use science as a process to create that behavior. And so I have a much wider view of it than perhaps some behavioral scientists do. And I think to your point, a lot of it comes back to respect, right? One of the really difficult things about psychology in the business world and in the product development process is 
we all feel like we have a viewpoint or expertise in humans because we are human, right? It's one of those things where like everyone feels like we have a little, you know, it's very transparent that I am not a computer engineer, right? Like I obviously (laughs) can't. Yeah, like there are skill sets that go along with that 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 I obviously don't have. Whereas everybody's sort of like, yeah, but I have good intuition about humans, don't I? Because that because saying I don't would be a profoundly sort of difficult, you know, identity-based statement. Like that's a profound ego threat to sort of say that. That I don't understand people yeah. is a really profound yeah. ego threat. And so getting people to recognize But, but how, how do you how do you unpack that though, Matt? Because it's obviously not just about that. And that wasn't what I was trying to say. It's not like behavioral science is something that most of us know as long as we think about it. Like in other words, you know, I, I do a lot of work right now on kind of this concept of, you know, what is expertise and what is it that we need going forward? And, you know, there's this very shallow notion that uh, IDEO and others sort of came up with, with like T-shaped experts. But the misunderstanding of that concept is that there are certain skills that are horizontal and easy to learn and everyone should have them. And then there are other skills that are deep and those are the technical skills and you should have at least one or ideally two or, or more of those deep skills. But of course, the world isn't like that. And certainly behavioral science, even though it is something that helps you in your everyday it's not like it's more shallow than other types of expertise. So tell me, Matt, on behavioral science for product design, what are the things that one needs to know about this field right now? How is it applied in industry and what are the kind of basic concepts surrounding it? Yeah, I mean, I think as a nascent field, uh, which it still is, you know, it, it, it isn't that old and its applications are fairly new, uh, you'll get a different answer from every behavioral scientist. Often that's very self-serving, right? Um, you know, there are consultants, there are these agencies, and then there are internal practitioners. And each of them has a little bit of a different viewpoint on, uh, you know, what it takes because, it, you know, it serves their, their interests to do so. Um, you know, as a generally internal guy, so I reveal my bias, um, you know, I think of, of really three key parts of the process, right? So one of those, you know, and so my teams typically have triads of people, project managers, right, who are um, really responsible for the experiment, moving the process forward and that experimentation, like we're literally going to intervene in the world and then, you know, sort of drive that process. And then quantitative researchers and qualitative researchers. And so quantitative researchers are sort of like data scientists and qualitative researchers are sort of user experience type folk um, who are, and they really are key in two portions of the process, right? So I run a 10 week process. Um, First week is sort of defining the outcome that you want in the form of a behavioral statement, then two weeks of insight generation, then pressure mapping, intervention design, and then four weeks of actual interventions and then measuring those interventions. And so the quant and qual folks really come in in that insight phase, right? Trying to answer two questions, right? Why would anyone ever want to do this? And why are they not already doing that? And they just have different lenses on it. You know, there's a there's a big difference between looking at the data and saying, you know, well, these two things are correlated with each other, which is what data scientists can do for you, and going out into the world and saying, well, given that these two things are correlated, what's actually going on here? Like, why are these two things correlated, right? And it's very difficult to get the whys from the data, right? You need to go observe in the world. And so I think you need both of those skill sets. And then on the measurement side, right? So project manager launches an intervention, it runs for a few weeks, you need to have a sense of did you, did you create the behavior that you wanted? Why or why not? Right. And, and both from a data-driven perspective, right. Can I see the data-driven behavior, but also did, when I went out into the world, does it look like people are doing the thing that I actually want them to do? Cause you can get these places where you sort of get a false positive, right? The data says it's working, but then you got in the world and you're like, Oh, we're just measuring this wrong. Like we, we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we need to be smarter about how we're measuring this. Matt, can you address that a little bit? Because I think there is a shallow way to practice behavioral science in product design, and then there's a deeper way, uh, right? Because the shallow way is, and I'm not, I'm going to pick on A-B testing just for a second, but you, 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 there's this notion of A-B testing, right? And it's typically around websites, but it's, of, of course, it's a concept that's much more general than that. So here it goes, right? You know, oh, let's A-B test this. And then what you do is you run like a tiny little experiment on one side and a tiny little experiment on the other. 
And now you have done two little experiments and you make this massive conclusion. You say, oh, A, yeah, it's A. We're going to run with A. And then now you're convinced because you've run a test. So tell me, how does, how does that logic work? And that work works whether it's qualitative or quantitative. Because even, even you think you have done a quantitative, you're like, whoa, we got 100 people opting for this and only 30 opting for, you know, for B. It, it's A. Right. So, so there you're running into some sort of, you know, you're like thinking you have a valid sample and a, you know, reliable sample and maybe you're not, but it also goes for, for qualitative and, and really any other approach where you, you sort of think you have explored two or three different options, but you're concluding based on faulty evidence. How does that work? Have you seen this happen? Oh yeah, happens all the time. And and I think there's two different things going on there, right? So one is the inappropriately drawing conclusions and one is uh, drawing conclusions that are overly broad. So, or, or rather not theoretically rooted. So let's address the first one first because it's sort of easier to do, right? Uh, you can you could have very large sample size. People often over uh, over index on sample size, right? And so they're like, "Oh, if I just run enough people through it, it it will eliminate my error." But if you get all of those people from the same pool of people and you just picked the like you didn't understand the biases inherent in the pool to begin with, you could survey the whole pool, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you know, in if you don't realize there's a pool right next door that you're not even looking at, right? So sa- it isn't yeah. just about sample size, there's sample selection and all sorts of other things that go into that that like you know, people can get very range restricted and ditto for quant or qual, right? I could go literally look at every single member, but if I never talk to non-members, I can draw completely faulty conclusions, right? If I never look at these, you know, this pile of people who are right next door, you can draw very faulty conclusions. The more pernicious one, and I think you sort of nodded to this, is you can decide A with no idea why A is actually better, right? So this, I, I often refer to this as like the purple button problem. I know through A-B testing that like when I make this button purple instead of blue, people do the thing that I want them to do. But I have no idea why. And so that means I now have to test every other variation of purple and red and green and every color in the world because I don't actually know why purple works. That's not what we mean when we say behavioral science, right? Having an insight-driven view of this helps us understand, hey, it's purple because of you know, high contrast. And so when I'm, when I'm doing further experimentation, I should be experimenting in the direction of higher contrast, right? Because otherwise you just have to run everything into everything. uh, Yeah. I mean, this is interesting. It's exact. I mean, that's where it's similar to science though, right? Because you could have Mm -hmm. an inductive science approach all day long and you could just keep experimenting with random stuff and you may or may not get there. You're making correlations and you're figuring stuff out, but you're figuring really nothing out because you didn't have a theory or an expectation in the first place, right? So that, you know, typically leads science astray. And it seems to be the same thing in in business. You're trying to um, experiment around the product, but if you're just throwing around really kind of unbaked product ideas and, and, and nothing, you know, even if something sticks, you have no idea, like you said, you have no idea why, and no, no amount of A, B, and C testing is going to tell you why. Uh, you know, That's unless right. you have a real expectation and you really have an insight about why you think it might work. Yeah, and I think that that like, like that, that and I think that explains the over-indexing on data science versus user experience right now. Like, you know, there is 10x as many job postings for data scientists as there are user researchers, right? But only the user researchers are going to be able to like help you with the why bit. Like the data scientists definitionally can't do that, right? Because it's all you know, sort of, it's only what you measure. And so, do you think that's going to crash, Matt? Do you think that eventually businesses will realize that, as mu- you know, as nice as it is to sort of like feel like I'm investing in quant people who know computers, that's really only part of the question. You know, ideally, you invest in people who know a little bit of both, right? Because you kind of need to know as you're, you know, cranking the data, you kind of need to know something about the context, or you just have to have an enormously good collaboration culture, and you can solve it that way. But this over-indexing, do you have a theory about how it happened? And do you have a, an idea about how to fix it? Yeah, I mean, like many things in business, I mean, I think it happened because it was the error we were making. We didn't have enough quant people, right? 
uh, we didn't have enough call people either, but we did, certainly didn't have enough quant people. And so there was this over-indexing, I think. And so as with many things in business, you know, when we swung the pendulum, we spung it way, way too far, right? So we went from this place in the 80s and 90s where people were product whisperers and, you know, we were over-indexing in on executives who had good product sense and just knew, magically knew the market, right? Which is a more qualitative sort of thing, right? And then we recognize, well, that's obviously BS. And so we swung the other direction, but we swung way too far the other direction. And now we overloaded on quant people. I do think it's going to crash. I think like any crash, we want to make it a controlled crash, right? So like chopping down a tree, I want to make sure the tree falls the way I want it to go. Because there's one version that says, I'm going to stop investing in data science. And then I'm going to go back to like opinionated executives, yeah. right? Which is the wrong direction. What nice to happen is, I'm going to hold. Yes. I'm going to continue my investment in data science. I'm just going to match that with an with an investment in qualitative science, right? I need to I need to up my investment here, not reduce my investment here. And so, you know, I, I think the I worry about the crashing in the wrong direction, which just goes back to, well, executives are always right, and we should just throw shots in the dark because executives are always right. Well, I mean, there's three things, right? There's executives are always right. And then there's, you know, the market is always right. We should just be in the market and feel it and dig it and 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 just, you know, surf on the market, which is kind of the inductive side of it, which I also think is wrong. And then and then of course you have this um quantitative side, which is, you know, we, we can just measure it and it's very easy. Tell me, uh so this topic of behavioral science is in and for using it in product design when did it really emerge i can't really recall you know like a decade ago this was much less talked about is that kind of when it started or or is it even more recent as a as a massive kind of investment area where where there's actually you know and we'll talk about this in a second you know which companies actually do have behavioral science departments because it's not like this is a this is not the same as the, you know, as the data science department. These are much smaller groups of people, even in large companies today. Yeah, it's hard for me to pin it to a specific date, although I have the instinct that you're right. Meaning when I first started uh, as the head of product at Thrive, which was, I'm going to call it 10, 15 years ago-ish. I'm old enough now, I don't remember exact years, right? I spent a lot of time trying to explain what the heck behavioral science was, right? That was my, you know, when I went into a room, I had to explain what it was. Now, I mostly don't have to explain what it is. People have heard of it, right? Like, and so I do think that there, over the course of 15 years, people have heard of it. Do they know what it is in specific? Have they ever interacted with it? Have they done it? No, right? But they, but they have at least heard of it, right? And so in some ways, this, I like the data science, you know, sort of paradigm, as like a way of looking at like the case study of how things flow through, right? So like, you know, in the 80s, you know, people had heard about data, but they may not have interacted with it, right? With data science teams in the same way, right? And then, you know, there comes a point at which data scientists don't have to explain who they are anymore, but they, but this might be somebody's first interaction. We're in that phase of behavioral science where most of the time it is people's first interaction with the behavioral science process, most of the time. In, in my experience, they've heard of it, right? 10 years ago, they hadn't heard of it. Now they've heard of it, but never done it. And so then the next phase, obviously, hopefully is the, they've heard of it and they've done it and now they want to do it some more, right? And we might just be on the crest of that, depending on sort of like at what companies and where in the life cycle you'll sort of look. But I do, you know, I am increasingly having experiences where people are like, well, we've at least tried it once, right? And I think one of the experiences that I'm hearing a lot much with early data science, I feel, is we tried it once and it didn't work very well, right? Which is the which is the canonical thing, right? Like the first time you do something, it's not going to work very well and you have to learn what you don't, you know, you have to learn the mistakes first. And so I think we're very much in the mistake learning phase. And I'm still, you know, as weirdly one of the older uh, and, and more experienced per people in this applied field, I'm still learning. My, my rate of learning is very, very high. I was talking earlier today about you know, I wrote an article maybe five years ago about chief behavioral officers and why I thought they should exist and like where I thought in the org they should sit. And even in that very short time period of five years, I've massively revised where, you know, if, if I rewrote that article today, it would be very, very different um, in, in a, what is a very relatively short amount of time. 
Matt, give me a sense of, just give me some examples of companies that are practicing this, that actually have behavioral science people. You know, they don't have to have them as chief behavioral scientists, but they have departments where there's people practicing what you just talked about. Yeah, so they've come and go a little bit, right? Um, depending on, and this is a sign that, you know, we haven't quite figured out how to integrate them well into the business, right? So like Uber had a team laid off the team, but there was a relatively big team there. Um, uh, Walmart had a big team. I think that's kind of gone away. And I think a, one of the things that has influenced that is either when there's a budget constriction, right? It's a place that gets cut or they're very personality driven or very leader driven, right? And so when that leader decides to leave, the the team disbands. And I think that that's, you know, in sort of an anti-fragile way, we need to get better at like the the process of behavioral science, right? Um, what I am very, like when I chose to leave Clover, like behavioral science still exists at Clover. Like the organization still does the process that I have laid out to them. They may not do it in a centralized way anymore, but they're still doing the thing. And that's what I want, right? Like it shouldn't, the, the existence of the function, the existence of the behavior should not depend on my being there or not, right? If something only exists when you observe it, then that's sort of, you know, like a weird Schrodinger's cat problem. Um, now there are still places that have teams. So Google's got a team. Uh, under Maya Shankar, who who started the uh, sort of behavioral science team under the Obama White House. Um, you've got Spotify, you've got Merits. Um, lots of the financial institutions have somebody in there that's doing, you know, something like this. Lots of insurance companies are starting to have people, you know, th there are folks at, at Allstate and Nationwide and a bunch of different places, right? Um, and so, you know, th there are the plate, the, the sector's Finance was a very early adopter and has continued to be a strong adopter. Um, I think retail is on the rise, right? They're yeah. starting to get more hip to it. Um, like consumer products like Spotify, right? Not exactly retail, but at least consumer facing. Um, health is starting to get there, um, although it's often external entities. But like there are there are pretty big investments in sort of behavioral science and health right now because um, we're starting to recognize that health is very reflective of behavior. And so it's unsurprising. That I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, bodes well for all wow. of us, I hope. Um, you know, COVID is a good example, actually. Like, yeah. you know, um, it, it was a place where people really pretty quickly, and, and maybe, you know, going back to your point about timing, 20 years ago, I don't think if COVID had happened, people would have been like, let's call the behavioral scientists, right? I don't think people would have even made the connection that it was a behavioral problem. They probably still would have approached it from a different lens. Whereas now I think, you know, a lot of countries, governments, et cetera, you know, one of their first calls was to behavioral science experts pretty early on about like, hey, can you pair with our epidemiology people about things like mask wearing and staying at home, et cetera, um, which I don't think would happen 20 years ago. So I think to your point, we have gotten some progress. Well, I, I think you have a very optimistic notion of that. Yeah. We have gotten I mean, some progress, but I don't think everybody made that call, right? I mean, the there seems to... Have have been a mixed uh, mixed behavior there among governments because surely if they had called those departments, uh, you know, and called in this expertise, we would have perhaps had a more conjoint effort globally. Just because that's kind of one of the lessons, isn't it? You know, if if it's all different all around, and you you can't just you know you're taking signals from everywhere, it's very hard for humans to lock in on any kind of behavior because you're getting signals that are so different from different parts of the value chain and uh, the trusted authority chain, right? So if, if those are mixed messages, I mean, you, you don't really have a product, you, they, they, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two elements to that. I, I don't think the problem was that they didn't call behavioral scientists early enough. I think it goes back to our, like, what phase of behavioral science are we in? It is tremendously hard to call someone. You can't call Matt Wallard and be like, hey, from a cold start, can you figure out how to get people to stay home during a pandemic, right? There's no time to run any science, right? I just basically have to go on what worked in the lab or what theoretically might work because there's not even time to really test much, right? Whereas if you'd had embedded teams that were already doing that work, right? Like the government already had a behavioral insights team. I think you're in a lot better position. And so the fact that they, I think it's good that they called behavioral scientists. I think it's bad that they didn't already have behavioral scientists on staff. And so then there are, you know, our ability to actually get to good answers quickly, you know, you can't, it's like trying to, you know, push back, a, calling the engineers to save New Orleans 
while the you know storm is happening is virtually you know they're going to do what they can but that's you know the, the new orleans flooded because of like decades of of disrepair and things right if you had engaged that team earlier and they could have made structural changes and they had time to test things you would have had a lot more robust uh uh, uh response and so i think the the lesson of behavioral science of covid was yes you should listen to those behavioral science folks but you probably should have had them around earlier, right? Like there's only so much they're going to do when you call them in in the last minute. If it, you know, And this goes across so many things. And I think this is just a human error that we make so often, right? That you call in the surgeon when somebody's appendix has already burst, where if you had you know, called before their appendix burst, you're you know, massively different outcome. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, in that sense, right, when you when you think about product design in, in, in that view, I mean, it's almost like preventative. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're designing the product knowing ideally what's going to happen once you put that product in there, as opposed to just designing it and then kind of improvising as you go. How do you apply that to a business context? I mean, and can you give me some concrete examples of products that were launched with that awareness that, we know quite a bit about this product already. We're not just launching it and then we're going to adjust as we go along versus, you know, we know nothing and we're going to just throw this product out there and, and we'll adapt it if we have to. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think this you, you're tapping a little bit into my bias as an internal guy, right? Like I, you know, I, we talked about those three camps of agencies, you know, consultants and, and internal folks, right? You're, you're speaking to my internal love, right? Because there's nothing more frustrating than a company calling me and be like, hey, it's two days to product launch. Can you B-side this? And I'm like, no, because all of the things, like I can give you some light advice about, I guess, your go-to-market strategy, but all of the things that we would do are already, so, you know, they're so far back here, right? Like you made the mistakes way back there. We really need to go back to the drawing board, which no company wants to hear. Whereas if you're a consultant, right, you love those gigs, right? Because, you know, that's how you get paid. Um, and so I, you know, I think it does reflect that internal thing. You know, there are lots of products that pivoted after they were in the market and that's not exactly a terrible thing for breeze is, you know, the common business school example, right. Where, you know, they, they launched it, it didn't go anywhere. And it's only when they got the sort of like, Oh, we're trying to cure a problem. Nobody thinks of their home as stinky. So we have to convince people that their home, that they've gone nose blind, that their home is actually stinky, that they, but they've lost the ability to detect it. And that's what will sell our product. And right, once they learned that sort of behavioral insight, that's what drove, and then they pivoted their go-to-market strategy. That's what really drove it. And so, and it's not that I think that is bad, right? I think it's okay to have something in the market. Um, but I do think purpose design things where you really know, you know, what, what behavior you want to create do just work better. And so there are a lot of examples, you know, like get raised from my portfolio or other things like that, where, you know, we knew we wanted to get women to ask for raises, successfully ask for raises. And, you know, pretty much day, and we were custom built to do that. And pretty much day one, we were very effective at doing that, right? And we've made minor product pivots over, over the years to sort of like smooth out some things in the process. But in reality, it's been incredibly effective at that very specific thing, right? Um, and pretty much from day one. And so, you know, going back to your earlier point about, well, there is this version where you just like throw shit into the market and then, you know, pivot it all afterwards. That just seems so wasteful and expensive. And it's not that I don't think it's possible. It just seems like a disservice to humans, right? Ron, can you hear me? <laughs> right. Talk me through some of that. So we've talked about some of the established companies. Talk me through some of the startups that are, or, or consultants, or, or individual people who are out there in the market providing this, this kind of, because that is, I guess it, it is very much a service at this point, right? Or are some, or are there companies who are successfully productizing this? Yeah, I can all hear. It. Or are there companies that are successfully productizing this? Yeah, I mean, so so there are tons of consultancies out there in the world. Um, we should cut off. I mean, first we have to make the distinction between government-led and sort of private enterprise. So there are governments. Lots of governments have spun up teams, right? Uh, UK being sort of the largest investment. Um, you know, prior to the Trump administration, the Obama administration had a pretty good-sized team, right? And so, if anything, public policy has been the place where this has gone the best. And then there are consultancies that also work in that sphere. So. 
um, whether that's, you know, Ideas 42 um, or, or some, you know, some of uh, uh, Dan Ariely's stuff, right, where people are working dominantly with nonprofits or governments on policy-led things, right? In the private industry space, there's an army of individual consultants, right, the Nirayals of the world, et cetera, that are, you know, sort of one-person shops that are going and doing behavioral science stuff. Um, there are a bunch of private uh, product design agencies um, or advertising or marketing agencies that have this, right? Like, you know, you have people like um, uh, MadPow or, um, you know, even like Rory Sutherland and some of the stuff that's going on, you know, at sort of big advertising agencies, right? So there are either standalone or now often rolled up. So a good example is um, PE Works, right? Was a standalone agency that then got bought by one of the big you know, sort of marketing agency players, right? In the way that they roll up agencies. And so now it's a capability within a larger consultancy often. Um, and so uh, I think that that uh, is a big part of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are a variety of flavors to get it. And then again, there are places like Spotify that have internal teams um, that that are sort of a, have been doing you know, uh, uh, great, great, great sort of product applied work um, that is now starting to come out and be very strong. And so, you know, I think you see all three different kinds of models out there in the world. Mm. And and I don't think any one model is the right model or the wrong model. I think you want to know a little bit of what you're buying, right? Again, as an insider, as a typically inside person, you know, you when you call people in at the last minute or you call them in externally, you know, you're going to get a very specific kind of advice, which is going to heavily lean on what worked in, in labs, right? And if we acknowledge, the more that you acknowledge that there's a disconnect between the lab and the real world, the more likely you are to need to go and, and get sort of individual people. So we've talked about the, the fact that when, when technology or, or indeed any product does not deploy any awareness of behavioral science, that typically doesn't go so well. Do you have examples of, I guess, the other way around of, of products that are so aware of what they need to do but still fail because they just don't have that innovative characteristic? Or, or obviously, uh, if you fail on a business model, then you, you could fit in with the market so well, but, but it's also possible to fail just because you can't make money doing it. Do you have some sort of more high-profile examples of, of products that have gone that other way where they actually kind of had that behavioral science thing uh, pretty nailed, but they failed on other sort of disruptive forces? They failed either on the innovative technology end or they failed maybe uh, taking into account government regulation or they basically just had a business model that was too expensive even though they were right on the money with a product that everyone liked. Yeah, I think there are actually a lot of good examples of this where, and I think the thing that you said is very prescient, it is often connected to business model. There are a lot of things that are incredibly successful at changing behavior, but then can't figure out a way to monetize that behavior or or got it wrong. Um, a great example actually is, you know, from my own from my own perspective, we can talk about my own failures, right? Like, the first generation of personal financial management, the first generation of PFMs, yep. right? So Mint, Wasabi, Thrive, like everybody in that generation. Everybody thought that the way that we were going to monetize was through through referrals, right? It was going to be all lead gen. And if you look at the space, nobody got acquired for that, right? The behavior that we thought that we were going to monetize with didn't line up with the behavior change we actually created. Like Thrive was very successful getting people to change their financial mm -hmm. behaviors. And so we exited to LendingTree because we could raise people's credit scores tremendously in a very short amount of time. Uh, you know, Mint got bought by, uh, by Intuit uh, essentially as an engagement product, right? Because what they this, the, the behavior that they were able to – Mint was incredibly good at creating a behavior. And that behavior was engagement. They did – a terrible job of changing anyone's actual financial behaviors, but they did a really good job of engagement. And so, you know, they were successful in the sense that they changed behaviors, but they didn't become a bajillion dollar company because they were, they failed at, they did, the behavior that they created was not the behavior they set out to, to create. And it was not well aligned with their business model. And so they got bought for a relatively low multiple by Intuit 
basically as an engagement product. And so I think probably the most typical example I see is, is a place where people create something that does in fact get very, very good at changing people's behavior, but they can't figure out, but either they change a different behavior than they thought they were going to, or, and, or they like, can't figure out how to monetize the new behavior. Right. And they can't figure out who, who actually cares. And, and you can very easily run out of runway in that, in that transitional period where you've changed behavior, but you haven't figured out how to monetize it yet. Like, because that's a place where investors are now very leery because you're not delivering on the thing that you said you were going to deliver on, right? Revenue isn't there. And you haven't yet figured out what the new source of revenue is. Uh, a great example of this actually is Pandora, right? Which got very big and then had to shrink way back down again because the thing that they thought that they were doing like they were very effective at creating behavior change. They got tons and tons and tons of users, but it wasn't aligned against their business model, right? And then, you know, they had a skinny way back down again and then grow again with a new business model attached. And I think that there are lots of examples of that. And, and there are great pivots there, right? I think um, in the way of, you know, tech has a short memory. Everybody has a short memory. Uh, but tech in particular has a short memory where like, Companies rewrite their own history to be like, yeah, that was totally the idea from the beginning, right? We definitely thought that was the idea at the beginning. No, it wasn't, right? Uh, a good example is like Birchbox, right? Where like you think this company is going to be about trial subscription, you know, like I'm going to give people little trial products and that's going to make them buy the big product, right? Um, and instead it turns into be, it turns out to be like a data user research company, right? Where it's an ability for companies to get data back from people about right. what they used and didn't and tries to close the supply chain data stuff, right? And so that's a smart pivot where they got the behavior, lots and lots of subscriptions, lots and lots of people using the thing, but then they had to figure out a new business model that aligned against that behavior, which they successfully did and then you know grew to the company that they are, right? And, and I often think scientists and engineers, you know, we talked earlier about respect, right? And this notion that like, you know, it's hard for engineers to respect that scientists, that behavioral scientists have a unique perspective on humans and have this unique skill set. I think it's hard for both of those people to recognize, hey, you know what? Those business people have a unique skill set. Figuring out how to monetize something in a creative way and who in the market is aligned with you and like, you know, who cares about the behavior that you've created is a unique skill set. And it's something that I think both behavioral scientists and engineers could have massively more respect for. Product people and engineers need to have more respect for business people you know, that third part of the triumvirate who, you know, without whom we don't have companies, right? You could change all the behavior in the world, but if you can't find a way to monetize it, then, then you're going out of business, man. <laughs> Matt, I'm um, curious, as you're looking into the next decade, what do you think will happen to this awareness that is now gradually building around the need for behavioral science in product development? Is there this necessary lawful kind of march toward more awareness and therefore better more successful products that are integrating all of these concerns or do you also see a potential for a backlash where this knowledge could essentially be forgotten again and we're kind of back to where we started in the 80s with these either just mass market products that work may or may not work or, or perhaps the opposite of all of these tiny, tiny little product variations and, and, and things that are all in the market simultaneously. And then uh, everyone's just waiting for the market to say, you know, which ones are we going to pick up and which ones are we going to ignore? Yeah. I mean, I'm tremendously bad at predictions. Uh, I know that about myself. Um, <laughs> I think both are possible. I think both are within our control, right? So let's use the example we talked about earlier of, of qualitative scientists, right? Or, you know, user research, et cetera. There's a version of the world where data science falls over and we go back to executives just believing that they know the truth. And then there's a world where we say, oh no, what we actually need is to balance this out with good qualitative research, right? And it's within our control, the control of everybody that listens to this podcast, you, me, everybody, to decide which one of those futures that we want to live in. And so I think it, it, what it will hinge on is what we learn from our failures, right? If what we learn is, well, that was just wrong and we need to backtrack, we will have gone in the wrong direction, 
right? Uh, if what we instead, if what we instead learn is no, that was good, and we can fail forward, and we can add things, and we can buttress things, and we can learn new things, right? It that I think will be that will be a good thing. That will be a big deal, right? And so. I don't know the answer. And I think this, you know, I spent a lot of time with my colleagues. I, I hate getting sucked into these debates about like, what is behavioral science and who can do it and who can call themselves a behavioral scientist? And do you have to have a PhD and all of these sort of like internal discussions that happen internal to any industry, right? Like, right. can you call yourself a computer engineer if you don't have a CS degree and you went to a boot camp? I don't care. Like, I just don't want to get involved in that discussion. It's not a fruitful discussion to me. The one part of the discussion I am interested in with it, with the behavioral scientists is how do we collectively talk to the world about what we do so that when the tree falls, it falls in the direction we want it to fall because inevitably, you know, and that has arguably already happened. You know, uh, there were these series of articles that came out during COVID where like Cass Sunstein, right? Like, you know, sort of grandfather of nudge, like, um, kept saying things, writing articles in the press, et cetera, that seemed to say contradictory things. Now, as a behavioral scientist, they didn't look contradictory to me, right? I understand he was just trying to nuance something that is a tremendously complicated set of behaviors. But there were a bunch of takedown articles where like, behavioral science recommends one thing and the exact opposite, right? And so all of the like pure economists that hate behavioral economics are like, look, it's all nonsense. They just keep predicting things in opposite directions, right? And I think that's the like, if we keep doing that, we're going to get back to the world of the 80s where like product product whispers just decide what the world should like and then put out nonsense into the world. If instead what we learned is, hey, people are complicated. We have to keep evolving this process. We're eventually going to learn how to do this. Like, and it's going to get more and more interesting, not less and less interesting. That I think we will arrive at better products. Matt, it's so interesting you, you say that and I... I was curious about your prediction because I think this whole decade has been full of tremendous technology change and also now with COVID, uh, an enormous societal change and environmental change and awareness uh, of of the, that there are other forces upon us which we will need to grapple with if we're going to have this kind of fantastic future that we all are hoping for where kind of everything coalesces where, you know, we still have a planet that's habitable, but we have all this advanced technology and, and we're, we're getting to know one another and we're getting to know kind of this, uh, this thing that we're creating here uh, with our planet in a way that, you know, that is more predictable and, and, and where we can, can apply more intelligence to it, you know, aided by our machines that we have created kind of in our image to, to help us out. But if you do look at kind of the um, the other side of the coin there, you know, with the next decade, what are some of the things on the horizon that you worry about from your angle? Hmm. You know, I'm one of those, I'm a fundamentally optimistic person. And so I'm one of those people who, you know, rather like Bill Gates, uh, you know, Bill Gates does this yearly report and one of his yearly reports was basically like, don't lose hope like things are up and to the right. And so it's a bunch of scientists, you know, pointing out how things are better than they used to be, looking at at this phenomenon of, of things moving up and to the right over time. Um, and so I, I fundamentally believe that, you know, if you look far enough down the road, we will be better off than we are. But there are lots of local things to be concerned about. Um, and I think there are backlashes generally against the good thing, right? So, in the last few years, we've seen an uptick in, you know, as white men rightly lose some of the power that they inappropriately had, right? There is backlash against that. There is their desire to hold on to that power and it, and it goes to tremendously negative places. And I think you sort of see the same, you see that anywhere, right? Like it, as simple as data science, right? As data science has its fall, whatever that may be, it will be, you know, if if what happens is a bunch of chief data officers, you know, violently resist that and try and, you know, sort of make us live in a world where they convince us that no, no data science really is the right answer and please don't defund me and please don't don't take away what I've earned. 
then then we'll go back. To, I think the net result of that, ironically, will be we'll go back to executives who just say things are right, right? Um, instead, I think failing gracefully, recognizing, you know, being willing to, it's like being a white male, right? Like if you sit here and struggle against it, what you're headed for is, you know, we will profoundly wrest that power from, you know, almost violently from you, right? Um, because you refuse to let it go. But if you instead participate in the dismantling, if you participate in the giving away of your power in the diminishment of the inappropriate power that you have, you will arrive at a much better end state, not only for other people, but for you, right? Because you will not have had your power violently wrested away from you and gone to hundred to zero, but instead you'll end at 50 where you should be alongside everybody else collectively doing things, right? It will be better for them and it'll be better for you and it will have a lot less stress. And so I think in business, you know, the sort of parallel is as we learn that things are imperfect, being willing to, to let go of some of that power and that territoriality so that we can, so that there is room for new things, I think is really, really key. And I, I, so that's one of the things I worry about is can we get people over their human nature to say, you know, please, I want a better world, but I don't want to have to give anything up. Almost all advancement at this point does require giving something up, right? If we want a greener world, we're going to have to not leave the lights on, right? We're not going to have to not be lazy about particular kinds of things, right? And I think getting people to a place, one of the true challenges lies behind, lies in front of us is getting people to a place where they recognize that global maximization, global moving forward does sometimes mean localized suboptimality, localized moving backwards, localized giving some things up. Because if nobody's willing to do that, if no one's willing to make any of the trade-offs, if no one's willing to give anything up, then I think we're, we're, we will continue to, to ride ourselves into ruin. Matt, if people have made it this far in the podcast, they either are converts to behavioral science and product design, or they are perhaps practitioners that are just you know, loving what you're saying and are just feeling inspired by this. How do you yourself track this field, what do you advise others to do in order to stay sharp or maybe just learn and, uh, and get up to speed on what behavioral science can do for product design, you know, in the coming decade? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, uh, in terms of staying individually sharp, for me, it's a practice of um, staying, staying uh, engaged right? Because engagement is the hardest thing to sort of continue. And, you know, as luck would have it, and I do feel very lucky, uh, I just, you know, it's a part of my brain that is always active, right? I am the person who's like sitting there, you know, in part because I struggle with people at times. Uh, I have a tendency to retreat into this place of, well, how could this be different? Right. It's one of the reasons I love sci-fi, not just from a sort of personal perspective, from sort of a professional perspective is like sitting and looking at the world and saying like, you know, it's like being on the New York subway and saying like, what kind of car, what kind of subway car could we create so that everybody exercised on the way to work? Like, could we all agree to walk in the same, we take out all the benches and everybody agrees to walk in the same direction. Are there pull-up stations? Like what could we do right to create this behavior that I want? And so like, I have this habit, and this is the thing I always recommend to behavioral science uh, people and people who want to get into behavioral science, is just looking at the world and being like, just play mind games with yourself. If I wanted, you know, Tron to wear red, what could I do, right? If I wanted Tron to, you know, do this upside down or turn his video on or off or, you know, just pick any behavior and just start kind of noodling and playing with it in your mind and turning it over and sort of thinking about like, eh, what kind of weird things could I do? Because... Mm -hmm that imaginary process will inform your actual process someday, right? Like there will come a time where you're thinking about how would I get people to do this on a subway car? Even if you have no control over subway cars, even if you're never going to get to do that, it will inform something else that you're doing. Right. And so it's that, you know, sort of applying that to everything that I think um, gets interesting. You know, one of the, in terms of staying abreast of the field, I think we're tremendously lucky in a way that we weren't 15 years ago, that there are now more publications, right? Then there, there's people science, there's, you know, behavioral science.org. There's a bunch of different places where 
we we now are organizing content and getting people to write and getting people to share. And I think that that you know reading some of those um, can really help you stay sort of at the bre- at the forefront of what people do. But if you only you know like anything, you know, you don't have infinite time. And if I got you to do one thing, getting you to engage in the process of behavioral science in a reflective way is more important to me than you reading about it. I'd rather that you try to get your roommates to clean out their wine glasses, right? Or whatever little tiny behavioral experiment that you can run in your life, than read my book or read another thing right? Because that really is start at the end. What we want is the ability for you to change all of those behaviors. And so hopefully what happens is you try and change your, your roommates cleaning out their wine glasses and you are unsuccessful at doing it, or you try and it isn't as successful as you want it to be. And then you read the book, right? And then you're like, oh, I can see how I could do it differently. And then you try again, right? I'd rather people came to my book or anyone else's book or something having tried it rather than having never tried it and then reading the book. Cause you'll just read the book in a whole different way if you've tried it and failed. That, that's interesting, Matt. And I think, you know, these, honestly, this is the best approach if you're in school as well and you're studying something that is applied is to, you know, to figure out how do you, how you can practice it. Luckily, um, teachers have gotten a little better, I think, at uh, challenging their students to to actually try to practice what they preach. Because if something doesn't work in reality, right, what, what are you what are you learning it for? So, you know, whether it, it is kind of interactionist perspectives in social science, where you're actually testing out the knowledge as you're learning them, or it's kind of action learning in business schools, or 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 actual prototype building and stuff in business schools. I do think that the the learning field versus the applied field. The, the gap there seems to be shrinking. I don't know if you agree with this overall. Uh, as we're sort of wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you, you know, ed tech and all of l- the field of learning, a lot of people are saying, you know, now we're going to all have to do this differently and we're, we're all going to do this online. But over and beyond just the online part, do you think that behavioral science has a lesson for the kind of the post-COVID moment of learning as well, that you, uh, that uh, just a little nugget that you want people to take with them as they're facing this moment, right? Whether it is with their kids and trying to have them adopt these new behaviors or it's themselves trying to basically refocus their entire careers or get their teams on board to, to a new reality. What can, what are some behavioral nuggets that you would recommend? Some, just some practical things that people should be trying right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's interesting. I have a degree in psych, a degree in education. Um, and so, you know, I, I have often commented on ed tech things and, and I'm fascinated by learning. I think the dominant problem of learning is one that I think we have more generally, which is we don't often articulate the behavior that we want, right? So I don't even think that we can fail at the science if we haven't even articulated what we want. And I think, uh, like if you look at the public education system, K through 12 public education system in the United States, it isn't clear what behavior we want from those students. So how can we go about creating it in a smart science driven way if we don't even actually know what it is we want? We like wave our hands at it. We're like, we want them to be good learned citizens. But what does that actually mean from a set of behaviors, right? And I think it's very difficult to educate if you don't know what behavior you want to create out the other side. And I think, you know, you said, how would you generalize this? You know, what should people be thinking about? I think the first thing that people really have to do in order to do behavioral science, you have to be clear about like what it is you physically observably want as a behavior in the world. Lots of people would say, I want to be more fit or want to be a better person, you know, or I want to be more kind. When you say I want to be more kind, what do you mean? Physically, literally, what does that look like in the world? Because Trond might mean I want to donate more of my money and Matt might mean I want to spend uh, more time reading with my son. Those are really different behaviors and we arrive at them in really different ways. And so getting away from these sort of bland platitude generalities and instead being really specific about the behaviors we want to create in the world is I think the, the biggest miss and the first step towards true behavioral science. Wow. I, I want us to end there, even though I would have really loved to ask follow-up questions on the implications of what you're saying for, for a bunch of other fields, notably, for instance, politics. But I think I'll save all of that in the interest of having a future conversation with you egotistically, because this has been 
thoroughly fascinating. I, I love uh, your approach to this, and I have just loved uh, being able to spend some time with you exploring the, the field. Thank you so much, Matt, for, um, for staying here with us. And, and thank, uh, thanks for having exploring. me. I mean, it's, these, these are the conversations we need to kind of have, and I think, um, you know, anytime people are putting themselves out there to have them, I think that's a really good thing. So thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. You're welcome. You have just listened to episode 34 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunar Nevenheim, futurist and author. The topic was behavioral science in product design. Our guest was Matt Wallert, behavioral scientist and author of Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change. In this conversation, we talk about how the field of product design has evolved, the value of experimentation, discovery of cutting edge products, who does it well, corporations and startups, and how the future of product design is steeped in science. My takeaway is that behavioral science should be an obligatory part of product design, and it cannot be an afterthought. Right now, most companies are overweight on data scientists and underweight on behavioral scientists, even though they are both needed in equal measure for a product to succeed. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.